0: All right, let's dive right into it this evening, back to the book of Galatians, okay? Galatians chapter 4, and we'll finish up this chapter today together. Galatians chapter 4 and uh, we'll be in verses 19 through 31 all right we started this couple of, couple of uh, Wednesdays ago and this text and this portion of scripture and we'll finish it this evening now as you're turning there keep in mind again the overall birds eye view if you will of this book of the bible uh, we need to keep in mind as we look at this this text and look at this letter to the galatians that paul is writing to these individuals to these churches to these christians that lived in the region of Galatia. There's not just one city, there are several, and so several churches, okay? So he's writing to multiple churches, multiple believers for this reason. Uh, There have been Judaizers that have made their way to this region and begun to spread their false gospel, uh, their false teaching of a false gospel of adding works to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's a false gospel of adding rituals and rules in order to be saved. Uh, They were teaching basically a works-based salvation is what they were teaching. And this is no salvation, that is no gospel. So by them teaching a false gospel, these false teachers were perverting the true gospel of Christ and causing great chaos in the hearts and minds of these believers and of these individuals here in the churches of Galatia. So Paul, knowing what's going on, uh, sits down with pen in hand, And very sternly and lovingly, yes, declares and defends the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Defends the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He defends the Lord. So that's what what this book's all about. That's in a nutshell kind of thing, overall view of the book of Galatians. But as we come more specifically to chapter 4 here, we need to understand this. Paul has been recording Uh, Recording for us his interrogations and his instructions that he started back even in chapter number three. But in these interrogations, these questions that he's been presenting to uh, the Galatians, in these interrogations, he is asking different questions to them. Uh, Questions regarding their faith in Christ, uh, regarding their response even to the teaching of the Judaizers. But he's doing this for these main reasons, for a couple of reasons. All right, of course, the main one is he's defending the gospel of Christ, but The other one is this, as he's questioning these individuals, it should have caused them to stop and to think about what they are being taught. It should cause them to stop and to think about what they are believing because listen, what we believe matters. What we believe matters. Why? Because our belief determines our behavior. And so that's why he's writing, to try to correct that belief or correct that behavior even of what they are believing. And so it did it did matter to Paul, and it should matter to us as well. So let's continue on, though, in Galatians chapter 4. And it's going to be in verse number 19. Let's read down through verse 31, all right? Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 19, and the Bible says, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Meaning, do you not understand it? For it is written Abraham had two sons, the one by bondmaid, the other by free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which was gendered to bondage, which is Agar or Hagar. All right, verse 25. For this Agar in Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou, barren, that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. He's basically talking about the Jewish individuals and those of Arabia, all right, or Arabs, okay? And uh, always conflict in the Middle East between these two, between Ishmael and Isaac. But anyway, verse 30, Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, and the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you, and we're thankful for the word of God. Thank you. We can open it, read it, teach it, study it, and I pray you'd help us, Lord, to understand it this evening. Open our hearts and minds to the precious word of God, as the psalmist said. Open thou mine eyes, that we may hold wondrous things out of thy law. And I pray this evening that you'd help me to teach, help me to preach, because I know without you can do absolutely nothing. Help us, I pray, in these few minutes we are together. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, as we begin looking at this last time, I just want to do a quick recap of this point we looked into a couple of Wednesdays ago, all right? As we dove into this portion of scripture, especially in verses 19 and 20, we, we took note of this. We took note of Paul's affection for the Galatians. We took note of his affection for these people. Now, we already know his non-affection uh, to those of the Judaizers, all right, the false teachers. We know how he, uh, his attitude towards them, his outlook towards them. Uh, we already know what he, he thought about them, uh, those individuals. And he made that clear to us in the very first chapter of Galatians when he said these words in Galatians 1, 6-9. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another. But there will be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed, as we said before." So say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you, than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Uh, Paul, understand, was not going to put up with anyone perverting the gospel of Christ. He had no patience for that. He had no patience for it whatsoever. He was not going to let it continue, at least without a fight. He was going to contend for the truth, contend for the faith. He was going to stand up for what was right. So we know what he thought of the false teachers, and he was not fond of them whatsoever. But what was the, his affection towards the Galatians? Even though the Galatians at the time were being, it seemed like anyway, uh, being drawn away by the uh, pizzazz and personality of these, of these false teachers, of these Judaizers. Uh, what's his affection towards them now as they're seemingly being drawn away after they even consider him to be, uh, or maybe at least being taught to consider him to be an enemy uh, he even said this in, in verse 16 of chapter number 4. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? I mean, surely, uh, since he, he was considered an enemy and if uh, their affection for him has begun to, to wane, surely his affection for them would do the same, right? You would think. But that's not Paul. Here Paul said this in verse number 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire To be present with you now, and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. Even though though Paul, at this moment, was grieved, uh, grieved that they would even entertain the thought of these false teachers, and no doubt he was heartbroken that they would even give eye service or whatever to the erroneous teachings of these false teachers, his burden for them, we can still see from these verses his affection was this, he was kind, tender, loving, Toward these individuals still. He still loved these people. You can see that in his delicacy or delicate tone toward them. He still had a delicate spirit towards these people. Tender. He was still, he was still tender towards them. And you can see that again in how he how he, uh, how he um, uh, uh, wrote to them. He said, my little children. He was tender. Tender. So understand this. Truth that is wrapped and a kind spirit is more apt to be received than if it comes from a harsh and demeaning spirit. All right? So Paul, listen, he was still tender towards these people. He loved them dearly. And then you can see that not only his delicate spirit, but you can see that in his distress he had for them or over them. He said, of whom I travail in birth again." Uh, here Paul was comparing the pain he was, had suffered bringing the gospel to them uh, as the pain of a, a woman in childbirth. Uh, now, he would not know in a real sense what that meant, but we also don't know the real sense of pain he went through as he'd given the gospel to these people or getting the gospel to them. But Paul knew what it meant to fight, to work, to travail, and to endure pain, to get the gospel to these dear people. But why would he do that? Because he loved them. So you can see his love, his his affection toward them and the stress that he suffered. But also we see it in the desire he had for them. Now, what was Paul's desire here? Well, quickly, be reminded it was much different than that of the Judaizers. You see, his desire for them was simply this, that Christ be formed in you. Verse number 19, again, at the end of it, until Christ be formed in you. His desire for these dear people were that they be more like Jesus. That's what he wanted for them. He didn't just want them just to be a little bit like Christ. Not just speak a little Christianese, not just clean up nice for church or anything like that. No, Paul's desire to understand is this, they would be completely transformed into the image of Christ. And he wasn't, he wasn't uh, suggesting they exchange some, form of, some, some sort of pagan religion or philosophy in favor of Christianity, but a complete change, that they'd be completely like the Lord Jesus Christ, a new life in Christ in the Lord, completely changed into the image of Christ from their thinking to their behavior until their mind and life will be in complete harmony with the mind and life of Christ. This is his desire, that they would be more like Jesus, that everything about them be more like Christ. And for someone to have that kind of desire, for someone to be like Jesus, that has to come from a heart of love. No doubt Paul loved these people even though that was not being very reciprocated at the time. He loved them. So we saw this last time. All right, this is still by the way, a little bit of introduction. We saw his affection to these dear people. He loved them. Now, let's, let's read on, all right? We come to this point number number two, main point number two. All right, we see number one, his affection towards, towards the Galatians. Number two, we want to see this, the allegory. The allegory that Paul presents. Look again, verse 20, let's see, Verse 21. Tell me ye that desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by bondmaid, the other by free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Look at verse 24 again. Which things are an allegory. All right. Now, what is what is an allegory? Well, simply put, an allegory is this. It's a narrative or story that has a deeper meaning behind it. You see, it's in an allegory that the individuals of that story or of that narrative or the actions in that story or in that narrative represent hidden meanings so that the story can be read on two levels, all right? A literal level and a symbolic level. Level, so in an allegory, there'll be some sort some sort rather of symbolism attached to the story. now, to be fair and even to forewarn you as Paul speaks of an allegory here in this text, please know this does not give us does not give us the permission to read into every part of the Bible as allegorical, okay. Uh, that does not give us the license to try to find every little tiny hidden meaning in every event of the Bible. All right, that's not what he's getting here, or getting at here. All right, please keep that in mind. Because if we take that primary approach to Bible study and Bible interpretation that make everything an allegory, then we can make the Bible mean almost anything we really want it to mean. And when someone does this, it can lead to false teaching. <laughs> And when you have false teaching, you know what you get? You get, starts with a C. Yeah, cults. That's right. <laughs> that's what you get. You will get cults. So interpreting scripture in an allegorical sense only can be very dangerous and is a very dangerous way of interpreting the Bible. So, bottom line, before we move on, all right, if the allegory is plainly understood, As we interpret Scripture with Scripture, such as in this text, plainly understood, it's written down for us, that's perfectly fine, all right? But if it's not plainly understood, especially as we compare Scripture with Scripture, then don't make the Scripture mean something it's not saying, please, please. Just be, be careful of that. We don't need to spiritualize every single text of the Bible. Rather, we need to interpret the text of Scripture in a more literal, in its historical and grammatical, here's the key word, context. All right? That's how you interpret Scripture. Not always an allegorical way, but more of a literal and its historical and, and uh, immediate grammatical context. All right, Please keep that in mind. But... Here in our text, in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 24 especially, Paul is plainly teaching an allegory. And he does so, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's the Holy Spirit of God that gives Paul the discernment about the hidden meanings of the actual history that he's referring to here, of the facts of Abraham, of the facts of Sarah, Uh, The facts of Hagar, you see it here in the text. The facts of Ishmael, that was Hagar's son, okay. And the facts of Isaac, he was the son of promise. Now as he's writing these individuals, they'd be very well versed in this uh, understanding of this history of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, and Ishmael, and Isaac. They would have, they would have known this story from, from start to finish. They would have very, been very well versed in this history that's found in the book of Genesis, all right? They would have known this. And so did the Judaizers as well. And so as he's referring back to this history, Paul is given a, an allegory a symbolism behind it, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he even tells them, listen, there's an allegory here. You know the history behind it, but let me tell you something a little bit deeper behind it. So as Paul gives the allegory here, or at least highlights it and tells them this, he doesn't just leave it up to them to figure out the application. He doesn't just leave it up to them to figure out what all this really means. He doesn't just leave it up to them to... Uh, sleep on it at night and we'll study it more in the morning. No, he wants to get it down to the T of what this really means for them. So number one, notice his affection. Number two, see the allegory. But number three, this is where we want to get to, see the application. He wants to give the application of this allegory that he is talking about. Look again at verse, uh, verse, 20, verse 28. Now we, brethren... As Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. The son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. So as Paul is writing to the Galatians here, he is fully aware... That uh, Judaizers have been appealing to the Old Testament. He's been; they have been appealing to the Old Testament forefathers for sure. Moses, no doubt. Abraham, no doubt. Others, for sure. And uh, they could, at this even moment, have appeal, been appealing to Abraham and Sarah in some former fashion. But uh, they were appealing to the Old Testament in order to try to prove their. Uh, gospel message or their interpretation of the real gospel right but trying to prove their gospel message and and really we need to say their gospel message and let's put it in air quotes because we need to say it loosely because it's not the real gospel all right but they're trying to prove their gospel by quoting or by appealing to the old testament to prove their way is true and so paul knowing this is the case he well takes it as a challenge it accepts it as a challenge and takes the same Old Testament scripture, quotes it many times, he does so a couple of times here, even in text we, we read, and proves not them right, but proves them wrong. And again, he does so through the allegory and makes application. Here's the application. By an allegory, the historical facts with some symbolism behind it, of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac, all right? Here's the quick quick application to it. Now in this historical account we know of between Abraham and Sarah, understand that Abraham and Sarah took it upon themselves to have a child, to produce a child, all right? But they did so in their own wisdom. They did so in their own flesh, in their own way, here it is, by their own works. That's what they were doing. And because it was their own way and their own works, understand something, that first child, Ishmael, he was the product of a fleshly activity. He was the product uh, from the the energy of the flesh. He was produced under the ordinary workings of the the laws of nature and under the ordinary laws even of society at this time. Uh, Because at this moment, at at this time, at least in the Old Testament time is what I'm referring to, it was perfectly legal uh, during Abraham and Sarah's day to marry your wife's bond major your, your wife's slave is perfectly legal in order to do this to have more children. It was perfectly legal to do that. And just on a side note, just because something is legal does not make it right. Amen. All right, thank you. <laughs> and besides, he had to be crazy to do something like that anyway, you know. But that's what happened. It was perfectly legal, and it was by the laws of nature to try to have a kid. No doubt they desired children. No doubt they wanted wanted kids. God promised them a child, but it had been some time now. It had been several years from that promise to, well, they're getting older. I think they were given that promise around the age around 75 years old, okay? And even at 75 years old, God said, you're going to have a child. You'd be like, whoa, okay. <laughs> no, you know, I think I'll pass on that. But, but God promised them a child. And they wanted children. But they went about their wrong way. They went about their own way and their own works and their own working and in their own flesh. They did everything they could to produce the promise of God in their way. So since Ishmael was the result of the flesh, since he was the result of their own works, understand something, the birth of Ishmael was this then. It was void of faith. It didn't have faith in God in what they were doing. It did not involve the supernatural, did not involve trusting in God. It was therefore out there of the will of God. It was void of faith and trust. And God, what they were doing was void of that. And the Bible says in Romans 14, 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So they're operating outside the will of God and definitely not in faith. And so they got what the flesh could produce. So since they operated in the flesh and since they operated in their works, here is where their confidence was. You ready? In themselves. Their faith was in themselves, in their works, and not in God. And such, here's the application. As he's making an allegory, talking about history, and making a a spiritual emphasis of the symbolism, here's the application. As they're working in their works to produce the promise of God, such is the works of a law that the Judaizers were pushing. The works of a law produces faith in self. It produces confidence in what you can do. Because if you can do enough good works, fingers crossed, you'll make it to heaven, right? That's what works would tell you. But again, the question comes to mind, how much works are enough? How much do you have to actually do? Where is the line drawn? Do we say, oh, finally, that's good enough. You see, we can't answer that question. Because there's never enough good works to gain salvation, to gain access to heaven. So the mindset of the works of the law, the mindset of good works, that mindset, listen, just as the mindset of Abraham and Sarah at this moment had, it leaves God out of the equation. And that mindset starts with self, meaning the good works mindset. The, the, the following the works of a law mindset, it starts with self. Because if you can do this, it starts with self. is void of God. It starts with self, but it hopes to end. I hope in the end, it does end with God. But we know it doesn't. We know it doesn't. Because by the law shall no flesh be justified. But the gospel understands something. It doesn't start with self. It starts with God. And guess where it ends? It ends with God. Why? Because it's all about God. It's all about the Lord. The gospel is God's work and not ours. And we as undeserving sinners just get the privilege to trust in the work of God upon the cross of Calvary for our salvation. In John chapter 6 verse 28 through 29, Then said they unto him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God. I can imagine as they asked this question, they're on the edge of their seats, Oh, what you've been doing is wonderful. What, what can we do too? Tell us, what must we do? And Jesus says, Alright, I'm going to tell you. This is the work of God. You're ready? Oh yeah, i got pen and paper ready. Tell me that. Oh, what is it? You believe on him whom he has sent. That's the work of God that you can do. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe on him, listen, by faith. This is the application of that other allegory, part of the allegory rather, the other half of it, in Isaac. You see, with the birth of Isaac, everything was quite different from the birth of Ishmael. Understand when Isaac came around, Abraham and Sarah, well, they were way too old. They were Too old when God said you're going to have a child, but they're way too old when they finally had Isaac. It is said that he was close, uh, Abraham was close to a 100 years of age and and Sarah was pushing 90. I doubt I ever make it to 90, all right? Let alone a 100. But if I was to make it to a 100 and God says you're going to have a child, oh God, just go ahead and take me now, you know? Just, I'm good, take me to heaven, you know? But he was, he was 100 years old and she was almost, almost 90. Even the Bible says they were basically good as dead, meaning their physical body was basically good as dead. The Bible says this in Romans chapter four, verse 19, and being not weak in faith, talking about Abraham, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. So looking at these individuals, Abraham and Sarah, looking at them naturally, it would have been impossible to have a child. But it's in the impossible that we know that God does his greatest work. Why? Because nothing should be impossible with the Lord. And in the the times when it just seems impossible, guess who gets all the glory? It ain't you and it ain't me. It's God. So sometimes God has to get us in those impossible situations where he gets all the glory. Not just a little bit, not just a simple thank you, but all the glory. And such was the situation here with Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. Even the Lord asked Abraham and Sarah one day when he told them they were going to have a child. And you remember she laughed, right? But in Genesis 18 verse 14, here's what the Lord said. Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a question, it's rhetorical, meaning no, there's nothing too hard, obviously. You're God, there's nothing too hard. Then he said this, at the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. So through the lens of flesh, understand, Isaac should not have happened. As you're looking at it through natural eyes, it should not have happened. But through the lens of faith, Isaac was always going to happen. Always going to happen. Why? Because he was the child or the son of promise. So understand, Isaac's birth was supernatural. It was of faith, and through faith this miracle of Isaac was wrought. Here's what Paul said as he's writing to the church of Rome. In Romans chapter 4, verse 19 through 22, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, we read that one already, verse number 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised... He was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Understand this moment, Isaac came by the grace of God through the faith of his parents. It's amazing. And so he's making the connection here. Paul's trying to make the connection uh, between this allegory of Abraham and Sarah and, and Hagar and, and Ishmael and Isaac to the pure gospel of Christ, he's trying to make a parallel to true salvation. Because true salvation does not come by works. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of a law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, we might be made justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of a law, for by the works of a law shall no flesh be justified rather salvation it comes by grace through faith again Ephesians 2 8 and 9 we should be very familiar with this by now for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God not of works lest any man should boast so once again Paul he proves his point these dear people he loves he has so much affection for he loves them so dearly they're being fed a, a load of, uh, here's a good theological Greek word for you, a load of bologna, all right? Fried twice over. It was horrible. A load of baloney that you got to do these works too. You got to be circumcised, keep these holy days and all this stuff. if You really won't be right with God. He yes, said that's not how it works. They may be trying to prove their point from the Old Testament, but let me show you something so wonderful. And me, let me show you something that may be a little hidden back then when, when Moses penned it in the book of Genesis, but I want to show you something that God has showed me through his wonderful spirit, through the Holy Spirit of God, the allegory here, that what they tried to do with Ishmael, they tried to do it by their own works, look where it got them. But when they trusted God by faith, look what God gave them. He's trying to make this comparison, this parallel here from the, the works in the Old Testament to the New Testament way of salvation by grace, through faith. Just proving yet again the true gospel of Jesus Christ that it's Jesus that is enough. You don't have to add works on top of it. Jesus is enough. I love this. I love this verse. I read it several times today and it just encouraged me even as I read it a moment ago. But I'll read it again. In Romans chapter 4 in verse 20, uh, verse 21. I'm <clears throat> talking about Abraham and being fully persuaded that what he, he being God, promised, he being God, that is, he was able also to perform. What God promises, he's going to do. I'm thankful that I can hang my very soul salvation upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm thankful I can put my very soul upon the promises of God. And that's that's where our assurances lie, is in the promise of God. Not in our feelings, not in if I'm doing this or doing that. No, no, no. It's in what God has already done, not what we can do. Paul is trying to get them to that point yet again. They know this. This has got so mixed up with these false teachers. Just be careful who you listen to, all right? I'm thankful we can rest upon the promise of God. Why? Because Jesus is enough and he's never, ever not going to keep his promise. He's never going to not perform what he said he would do. What he had promised, he was also able to perform. And so Abraham operated in faith to the grace that